Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our first wine topic is from CNN, and it's all about reduced calorie wines. Kim, this has been one of my kind of pet peeves lately in wine. Funny, um, mine too. I, to me, it's all a marketing tool to for people thinking that they're getting a better, healthier wine than they really are. Right. I, I have a big issue with the concept of lower alcohol, or not necessarily lower alcohol wine, but lower calorie wine. The alcohol part of it does come into play. But I think a lot of it is misinformation or just misunderstanding on the part of a wine consumer knowing how much of a calorie count is in their glass of wine to begin with. Yeah, so they're marketing based on taking advantage of people not understanding the relationship between calories and alcohol. That's, that's what I think too. We have a, a fairly good understanding of how many calories are in a glass of wine, five ounces of dry white wine, dry meaning there's not really any sweetness that you can taste in that wine. It runs you about 120 calories a glass. And if you're talking about one of these wines that is marketed as a lower calorie light wine, you're only saving maybe 20 25, 30 calories. Those glasses, they, they run somewhere between 90 and 95 calories per glass. So for something that hopefully you are drinking in moderation, you know, you're not having a bottle a night, you know, maybe a glass, maybe two, you, you're really not saving a whole lot of calories. And I don't think that the, the things that you lose in the pleasure of drinking that wine are worth those extra calories. So if it's a 13% alcohol, you're saying average 120 calories per glass. Right. And then these low calorie wines are say eight to ten percent alcohol, so they're in the lower range of, of calories. Right. But I, I'm thinking it also depends on glass size as well. If you if you're used to pouring a six ounce pour, your calories are going to go down significantly, but your alcohol content drops. Right. So you need to think about that. Your calories are going to come from one of two places or both places uh, when you talk about wine. So you either have sugar in the wine that is giving you calories, and then of course you have alcohol in your wine, which is also contributing calories. And when you're talking about alcohol and calories and then having a wine that is lower in both of those things, the producer has to do something in order to lower that. So is your lower alcohol wine getting that way because it's being diluted with water or because it is going through some sort of technology that is allowing the alcohol to be stripped from it? And when you're stripping the alcohol from your wine, are you also losing other components to it too? So in my experience, as I I have tasted through mostly, I would say mostly white wines that have had their alcohol reduced by some method. I feel like it just doesn't taste as good. And I would rather take those few extra calories than and still really enjoy what I have in my glass as opposed to drinking an inferior product that maybe is a little bit uh, reduced in calories. And the reduced calorie wines have been around for a while. There's been a lot of New Zealand producers that were, were putting out this and some of them have really good flavor. I just have a problem with them marketing it as 
bed, go out, work out, and then you can come home and drink this wine and feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And not only the alcohol, but they're saying the sugar levels are better for you too, which to me is totally bad market. Yeah, you've got this issue with saying that something doesn't have any sugar or has no added sugar, which again comes back to this whole marketing angle. When you look at the technical, on a technical level, wine will always have a little bit of sugar left over to it because yeasts just can't consume every last tiny little bit of sugar in your wine. So when a brand is telling you that it has absolutely zero, no sugar in it, that's not really very truthful. Yeah, and it's a, it's a technical thing. And being the geek that we are, we, we researched <laughs> it. And, and there's a plus minus scale on that sugar level. So they're saying since it's in the negative part of the level, it's still detectable, but it's in the lower range that it's they're saying it's there's no sugar, which right. technically they're right, but morally, I think they're wrong. <laughs> and it might not necessarily be sugar that you can notice on your palate because there is a threshold that, that human taste buds can actually perceive sugar at. So you might taste a wine and it tastes totally bone dry to you. There still might be a little bit of sugar in there. You just can't notice it. And the other thing that's happening now too, these wines were trending very popular. So they get people kind of hooked on the marketing. Now over the last few months, they're starting to raise the price point. So they're going Uh, up a price point. So they figure, okay, we have you kind of roped in. Now we're going to raise the price point. So now you're going to pay more money for less alcohol. Kim, what about other wines that are low in alcohol, but traditionally that's the style would you if someone said to you uh, you know i want less calories instead of saying go get these fit wines would you recommend say a moscato that's lower in alcohol well it's lower in alcohol but it also has tons of sugar in more it. more sugar yeah but, i mean is there another wine that you would recommend saying that's low alcohol that's just a, a nice drinking beverage for wine yeah, there are a Comparable? few there are a few out there I, I think it also depends on the style that you like you know a lot of people do like a little bit of of sweetness in their wines but if they're really paying attention to their sugar then to stay away from super low alcohol because we have that, that balance scale where the lower the alcohol, generally the higher the sugar and then vice versa. So the higher the alcohol, the less sugar generally you will find in your wine. So if you're looking at a wine that's say a 9% Riesling, that's going to have noticeable sweetness to it. Same with those Moscatos that come in at 6 or 7%. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to find a dry wine that has lower levels of alcohol, but they are out there. Things from cooler, growing places tend to have a little bit lower alcohol because there's not as much sugar in that grape at the moment that it's picked. And if there's less sugar in that grape, there's less what we call potential alcohol. So that grape just naturally will not produce wines with a higher alcohol level because there just isn't the sugar in there for all the, the yeasts to eat up and turn into alcohol. So something like Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley in France will have a little bit less alcohol. Muscadets, which are dry, again, French whites that are crisp and clean and generally tend to be a little bit but lower in alcohol. So I would steer people more in the direction of those wines, you know, cooler climate, fresh, bright acidity, not super heavy, but not from some place that gets tons of heat and tons of sunshine like California or Australia, which tend to produce big, gutsy whites and red wines. That's exactly what I was thinking. Cooler climate where it's it's the varietal is correct. And it's a lower alcohol, but it's true wine. It's the what the they're producing in that region. So it's a style that people can learn to love and feel good about it. Yeah, I mean, even Pinot Grigios from the north of Italy, you know, those are going to fall into that same category if they're grown in the northern regions where you have the mountain ranges and it's really a nice place to grow wine and they're not going to produce these big, heavy, high alcohol wines. So let us know what you think when you see Kim and I on the treadmill not drinking these fit wines. Give us your feedback. 
Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find Mark online at franklinliquors.com and you can find a little bit more information about me and my company at vinitaswineworks.com. Today we're revisiting one of our favorite wine sites, Vine Pear, and an article they had on a trending style of wine, which is red wines aged in used bourbon barrels. The first time that I was exposed to any of these wines was at your store, Mark. There was a uh, Cabernet that had been aged in uh, bourbon barrel, and it was it was quite an int- intriguing wine to see and to taste. This has been interesting trend. I, th- I think it was 2014. Mondavi, Robert Mondavi came out with a product. Then Fetzer came out with a product. There's an Australian producer, Jacobs Creek, that came out with a product, and they were all pretty similar price points. Now they're kind of experimenting with a higher price point. Now that people are kind of following the trend, but a few things that are interesting to me is that it's used oak, but as as we know, it's not really regulated. Are they using the actual barrels? Because the price point, like the Madavi is like a $12 bottle. I'm thinking they're not putting it in the barrel as much as using parts of the barrel to mm-hmm. impart this flavor, which is okay with me. I mean, it's a, it's a hot trend. What did you think of the profile of these wines? I thought it was pretty pretty spot on for the ones that I've tasted that say that they use used bourbon barrels in their winemaking. It's interesting that you bring up the use of the barrel. This is one of those sort of dirty secrets of winemaking that I think a lot of consumers don't realize. You you might see on a wine label that the the wine either says it has oak treatment or um, I, what are some of the other terms that, that a wine label will... Oaked. It'll just say it'll just oaked. Say oaked. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is a big oak barrel that the wine is put in and just left there in order to get the flavor of the oak. Sometimes a winery will use oak chips or um, oak staves, which are just the big pieces of oak to impart the flavor of the barrel into the wine without necessarily going to the expense of having the actual barrel. So this is one of those things that people tend to really enjoy, Americans especially, the flavor that oak gives to wines, big Cabernets, Merlots, big Chardonnays. It's a sweet, rich, caramelly, toasty flavor that is very, very appealing to a lot of people. And the uh, the idea of using a bourbon barrel, I, I also think is very appealing and not only because bourbon is also a hot and trendy thing these days. You know, there's a lot more, I think, good bourbons out there that people are starting to experience and bourbon cocktails are really are really hot. And, and putting those two things together, you know, it's a flavor profile that people really like. And then you match it up with another beverage that, that is really trending quite popularly right now. And, and I think it's a winning combination. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. They're producing, because of the popularity and the trend of bourbon, they're producing more. So they have all these excess barrels, right? So so this is perfect for each other. It's, it's a great way to reuse something. I mean, oak barrels are super expensive, talking over $1,000 for a barrel. So if you are making fine wine and you are using legitimate new oak barrels, that, that wood was a tree a couple of years ago, and, and now it's used in your winemaking, that really adds to the price tag of that wine. So for winemakers to be able to find a secondary source that maybe the bourbon folks aren't in need of this anymore, and there's this reuse going on in the industry. I, I think that that is very admirable. This was probably a trend that developed from the craft beer movement as well, because the craft beers before wine were aging the beer in ba- uh, bourbon barrels. So mm-hmm. I think they probably picked up on that. And I think they probably, I like that they are looking at trends and different things. So now I'm thinking down the road, are we going to have like um, Jack Daniels, a 
cask aged and you know playing on these wineries that own other liquor companies to mm -hmm. market each other's products that's interesting i could see that really happening yeah i mean we and it's sort of interesting you know i was going to say that i i think it's it's very interesting that the creativity that we see in craft brewing is moving over a little bit into wine but we've seen this before in other things so like used sherry barrels will be used for other things or used barrels from irish whiskey or scotch are then repurposed for aging other either wines or beers or other things in there so you know this isn't a unique thing this concept of reusing the barrels has a relatively long history but i, I just I, I really like this idea of they're playing off of the trendiness of bourbon and and putting it towards something that is a completely different product yeah, there's so much marketing potential and options that they could use and now the bourbon barrel aging has led to products in rum casks so ah. i've been seeing the 19 crimes line age wine in rum casks so now we're expanding to other things now you're going to see whatever scotch everything it's endless where yeah. it can go and what sort of the the takeaway from from this article you know after they went to some lengths to explain you know the reason why this was being done they kind of turned the page a little bit and said okay now we're going to tell you why this is just a marketing thing and that the flavor of the barrel doesn't really change the wine itself it's changing the perception of the consumer and what they would expect to be tasting so talk about all these smooth sweet notes that one would expect from a wine that is aged in a bourbon barrel like caramel and maple and vanilla and brown sugar and all these spicy notes and wonderful things that you would ordinarily get in just a regular new oak barrel with a lot of toast to it so it's like how much of the actual flavor of the wine if you're taking a sip of this wine that's been aged in a, in a bourbon barrel, how much of it is really there or how much of it is your perception because now you know that this wine was aged in a bourbon barrel and now you're thinking, ah, oh, you know, this association of, of flavors between the two. So it's this a little mind game almost. Yeah, but it leads to better things for us for more education because, you know, we talk about French oak, American oak have certain characteristics. Now we can say bourbon barrels will give right. you this flavor. So it, it leads to more opportunities for education and tasting technology, I guess we could say. So if this is a flavor profile for your red wines that is appealing to you, you know, if you like those rich, sweet, kind of caramelly, lots of oaky flavors to it, you know, keep an eye out for these red wines that are aged in bourbon barrels and give them a try. Yeah, and I'm going to mention three letters, Kim, just to you. BBQ. BBQ. BBQ, barbecue food. Right? Absolutely. This, and when we were doing a chocolate event, I was going to pair this perfectly, I thought, with, with a chocolate with a little spice. I thought it's a great food mm, wine, right? Absolutely. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim. We're exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we're going to talk about an article, What is an Authentic Wine? Kim, you had a very interesting background story on this article. So this is an article from a website called Dame Wine, written by a, a wine professional 
professional in New York City named Catherine Todd. She and I are actually friends on Facebook. So this this was really fun to have popped up in our list of articles to read and talk about because she and I have a little bit of conversation back and forth about the wine industry, women in wine, topics like that. So she goes on a lot of um, wine tasting trips and goes to lots and lots of wine tastings and is actively involved in the wine industry down in New York. And I thought that this was a very interesting article because she's talking about this idea of authenticity in wine. And it's a tough, I think, concept to kind of wrap your brain around when you're thinking about what what is wine on a small production level versus wine as a big commercial product. And when it comes to food and people want to kind of eat local and know where their food comes from, there's a parallel track of that for wine. And it's sometimes harder to think about, you know, the wines that you are drinking on a daily basis are produced by these giant corporations that make millions and millions of bottles. And it's, it's an interesting topic to think about. I love how we always talk about the world of wine, but then you come across something where you see these articles and you actually know these people. It's just amazing how things all play together. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times she had said authentic e- equals a human-owned uh, winery or a small quality winery. And I am so big into finding the real story behind a, a winery or a, or a grower versus a corporation. That's my whole big thing as a buyer and how I feel good selling a product. And she mentioned a story about uh, her experience with Fetzer. What did you think about how she played that about it's a big, you think of Fetzer, it's a big company, but then she looked in depth and found a few things. Right. It was interesting that she explored the idea of you can still have the feel of a winery when you go and visit and meet the people that are working day in and day out, see the people who have boots on the ground, hands in the vineyard that, you know, at the end of the day, this is a livelihood for a lot of people, but this is still a winery that is owned by a major corporation. It's owned by Conchitoro out of Chile. And it's this, I, I don't want to say disconnect, but this difference between looking at the the company structure and then looking at the people who are actually doing the job day in and day out. And and I thought that that was that was interesting because I'm I'm reading this article and I'm thinking how can how can you say that you are small business or authentic or dealing with these individual places when you make two million cases there's such a vast quantity of wine that we're talking about here but they're trying to stay true to this idea of these are handmade you know they're it's not commercial it's something that attention is being paid to so I, I still think there's a little bit of a disconnect in my mind that you can talk about a wine that is authentically from a particular place and yet you're making massive quantities of it yeah and I can I totally understand how you're saying the disconnect and I think the eye-opening experience for me related to that was uh, the Bogle winery. When you see Bogle, huge production, Merlot, Cabernet, Chardonnay. But every so many years, they produce a Chenin Blanc that is grown and produced by them. So it's a small parcel that they focus on this very limited amount of white wine, and it's a $12 bottle. So you're thinking it's a big corporation, but then there's some authentic product that they like to stand behind and release every so many years. So does that make sense, Kim, how I kind of related it to it's an authentic? It's actually what she was 
saying it's an actual place when you can actually you can go to a wine room and see vineyards all around it and it doesn't necessarily mean that's the grapes that are going in that bottle but when you can get a tour from someone and they're saying we're picking these and they're going in this bottle there's authenticity yeah. to that and this is a big thing for you when you talk about labeling and you know where are the grapes from and who's picking them and who's making it you know, is it in a giant silo or is it in a wine room that is someplace that you can visit and you can see and you can smell and and all those things a major component to this authenticity thing is is the concept of sustainability so i think it's a little bit easier for one to think about the idea that they're yes they might be a big company but if they're still putting into play their values when it comes to creating a product that uses sustainable sustainability practices when it comes to the vineyard when it comes to making sure that you're not using too much water or too much power or you're using solar these things this is starting to become something that we do see more on a large scale and with large scale companies so that was a, a major takeaway i felt for th- with this idea that one of the defining characteristics of this authenticity movement is sustainable practices in the in the production of the wines and the, the authentic term is not some you're not going to walk into a, a wine retailer or a wine list and see here's the authentic section right, right. it's something i feel someone has to have a, a passion for a winery or a wine to pass that on to you to say hey you know kim i think this wine is just phenomenal and these are the reasons and you buy into the story and you're believing that authenticity right and that's what it comes down to is the story and we see so often we hear that people want the story you know they want to buy into the idea that this wine comes from you know this tiny little place and it goes back you know four generations and oh my grandmother made wine this way and like this this mythology of the farmer winemaker and for me I if I'm looking for something that I'm gonna quote unquote call authentic I want it to be a place that I can go to and meet the people and yes hear that story but also know that they're not trying to pull one over on me and tell me this pretty tale and then on the other hand they're I don't know trucking the grapes to someplace gigantic and making millions and millions of cases so so I don't know my my jury's kind of still out on can a really humongous winery be considered authentic I did like how she ended the article though where she said that yes this is a, a really big winery but it's providing a livelihood and it's providing jobs and support for all of these people in this entire community and and that is certainly very valuable and very important as well so that that part of the human element i love how you explain the whole getting behind a product to me that is why i got so involved with wine education because i cannot understand a lot of times why people will just select a wine based on a label or a marketing and not want to know the background not only what's in there but who the heck is making the money off of this is it is it a small farmer or is it a big corporation so i think together we kind of have a passion that way but i wish more people kind of looked at this authentic version of when they purchase wine Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. We can be found online at franklinliquors.com and vinitaswineworks.com. So we love to talk about trending topics, things that are new and up and coming in the wine world, and uh, something that has been on the horizon for a little while, but that we haven't seen too much here in the States is the wine industry of China. So there is quite a bit of wine, not only consumed in China, but also produced in China. It's not something that we 
often see here in the United States. But because China is such a, a gigantic global consumer, it is definitely impacting the world of wine and is definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I've been really following this lately because I have a friend who travels to China a lot and I feel like this could be the next yellowtail movement in the wine industry. Does he bring wine home for you? He, he doesn't because he says it's all not good. Uh. I think he just used that as an excuse. <laughs> but they're saying by 2022, there'd be 225 million in the population of China. The first seven months of 2017, they drank 407 million liters of wine. So let's look at you have a ton of consumers, people that there's a demand for wine. So not only is it good to import wine here, but it's also could become a big export region of wine. They were saying they're also in the top 10 of wine producing countries right now. So there's so much good news coming out of China. And you can also find a lot of bad news from China about mm. fake wines and that. Not. I think this trend is just going to take off. Yeah. With this this growth in their in their middle class and their upper class, you know, talking about this, these numbers of 220, what, 222 million yeah, wine consumers. I mean, that's that's a lot of wine consumers uh, in, in one particular country. I mean, they have a vast population anyway. But when you have this growth in a particular area of, of income and wealth, uh, there's a lot of that wealth being spent on luxury consumables. And wine is certainly one of those for businessmen and people who are, are wealthy. Bordeaux has always been one of these sort of high class consumables in China that carried a lot of status. And we always have heard about fake Bordeaux being consumed by businessmen in China. And, you know, everyone seemed to have a bottle of 1982 Lafitte on their table at a restaurant. And, you know, something we could kind of give a chuckle to. But, you know, it underlies the the point that there's a lot of wine being consumed in China. And w- one thing that I thought was very interesting about this article was talked a bit about wines that, were produ- that are being produced in China, but not necessarily being consumed by the Chinese. So Chinese wine consumers still really are uh, drinking European wines. And we're thinking that, you know, that will soon move to them exploring California wines and and it will just change the whole map of where we import and where we export and and new markets for for winemakers. Not only are they spending a lot of money buying wine, but they're they're buying up wineries. So if they like a Bordeaux, these these Chinese corporations of of actually bidding on these uh, chateaus and buying the wineries themselves. And I think there's a few instances in the United States where they're buying out wineries as well. Yeah, I think there are a couple of California wineries that do have Chinese ownership. So they're looking towards the future of this is a trend in our country. We need to go find sources to get direct imports. They, the climate itself for growing the, the wine is very good. I think that they're doing well with Cab and Chad. I think in some places and it's you know I mean, and it's like everywhere you know not every place in France is great for growing grapes not right. every place in Italy is great for growing grapes or, or the US so since it is such a young industry they're really relying on folks that have gone abroad and done their wine studies and have worked out wineries whether it's in France or in Australia and then come back and come home and brought that knowledge with them so that they can really scope out what is the best region to be growing growing wine grapes in so I think 
think in the future, we will definitely see an improvement in the quality of wine coming out of China once they figure out where to grow and what to produce and and then work their marketing from there. Yeah, they're in the experimental phase of finding out what's best. There was a few interesting stories about one producer who had a $300 Cabernet, and they're saying, well, if you want to start setting a trend in the United States by sending a $300 bottle of Cabernet is not the way to start getting people kind of hooked on Mm. on Chinese wine. So my whole thing going back to the yellowtail movement in Australia was bring in some bulk wine, let people see the first Chinese wine product. I think it'll take off. I think there'll certainly be an initial curiosity about it because honestly, we haven't seen any of these wines here in the US. We, We don't see too much wine from this part of the world at all. I mean, there's a little bit from India. And of course, we have, you know, sakes and rice wines and things like that from Japan. But we don't we don't really see a whole lot of these products coming to us from Asia yet. So we'll keep following the Chinese news and report it to you. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Feel free to leave us any questions or comments. Cheers. Wine, wine.